We're going to continue this evening with our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we are still in the 11th chapter, and we will look now beginning at verse 11 and following through verse 24. And in this section, we see the apostle teaching us that the rejection of Israel by God is not the final step in God's plan of salvation, but there remains a history for His people that is yet to be fulfilled. So let's look then at the text beginning at verse 11 in chapter 11, and let me ask the congregation to stand and Larry. Could you get me something to drink up here? My voice isn't as strong, but it's better than Burke's right now. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Where if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness." Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they did not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. May God have mercy upon us as we hear from His infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word. 
Please be seated. That's okay. Thank you, Larry. Let's pray. Again, our, our Lord, we look to you to help us understand the depths and the riches of these things set forth in sacred scripture. We know none of these things save by your revelation of them through the scripture to us. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear these sacred things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for the second time in the 11th chapter, and I don't know how many times because they've been several in this epistle, Paul begins a section by using the literary device of the rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are questions whose answer are so obvious that uh, anybody should catch them instantly. And one of the nice things about the Greek language that we don't have in English is that there are certain specific structures in the manner in which questions are stated, which structure tells you conclusively whether the answer to the question is yes or no. And this is one of those rhetorical questions that begins in verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? That's the question. Paul has already told us the severity and the manner in which Israel had missed their calling by seeking it after the law and of works and so on, <coughs> and had become blinded to the truth of their redemption. And so they tripped over the Messiah who was the rock and the rock of offense to them and became the stumbling block to his own people. And so the metaphor that Paul had used was that the Jewish people were tripped up with their rejection of Jesus. They stumbled. And now he's asking the question, for what purpose did they stumble? What was God's design in their being tripped up over these things? He said, was the purpose that God had in allowing His people to stumble over the stumbling block that they should fall? I mean, usually when we stumble, that is the result. When we trip, we fall. And when we fall, we often get hurt. Sometimes we fall and we can't get up. And again, what Paul is saying is, was that the reason? Is that he, did God want his people to fall? Not just temporarily, but fully and finally. And he answers this rhetorical question with the same emphatic response that he has so often in the epistle. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, other translations. By no means, other translations. Still, God 
forbid. It's the last conclusion we should come to, that God's purpose in the stumbling of Israel was their permanent fall into destruction. But, the apostle says, through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Boy, this passage reeks with irony, doesn't it? Later on in verse 25, Paul will elaborate on this principle by referring to it as a mystery. And this is a, uh, one of the favorite concepts of Paul in his New Testament writings, particularly when he addressed the Colossian community in that particular epistle where he speaks of this concept of the musterion or the mystery. By the way, the Latin translation of the Greek musterion is the Latin word sacramentum. That's why sometimes in some churches the sacraments are referred to as the sacred mysteries because of that linguistic connection between the Greek and the Latin. But though the word musterion is translated into English by our word mystery, there is a great chasm between our understanding of the word mystery and the Greek concept that Paul uses. We speak of mysteries in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, when we think about those concepts that come to us from the Word of God or even from the realm of science where we don't understand them, we say they remain mysteries to us. We haven't been able to fathom their meaning. And so that which remains undisclosed and difficult to our thinking, we call a mystery. And then we also like to speak of mysteries with respect to whodunits in uh, the novel or on your television programs in crime and the like. We talk about the case of this or the case of that particular criminal mystery, an unsolved problem. But in stark contrast to that, in the New Testament, the use of the term mystery or musterion is this. It refers to something that once in the past was hidden or concealed, but now has been revealed and made plain. And the single most important mystery with which the apostle grapples time and again in his writing is this mystery Christ in you, the hope of the Gentiles. The grand mystery that was so heavily veiled in the Old Testament, concealed profoundly through hundreds and hundreds of years of redemptive history, that is now made clear that the Gentiles are included in the people of God. Now, even though that was veiled in 
the history of the Old Testament literature, it wasn't totally hidden. If we go back to Abraham, we remember that the promise to Abraham was that he was blessed in order to be a blessing, and that through this covenant that God was making with Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So, implicit in that promise to Abraham is the idea that at some point the non-Jews, the Gentiles, would participate in the blessedness of this covenant that God makes with Abraham as the father of the faithful. We think of the little book of Jonah, where Jonah is sent as a missionary to a Gentile land. And so the idea of reaching out to Gentiles to include them in the covenant promise was not completely unknown in Old Testament Israel, but it was certainly vague and in shadows for most of their history. And now, Paul says, the grand design of God, the mystery of the stumbling of Israel, is that God's purpose in having Israel fall in their apostasy, through their apostasy, in order to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, we need to hear this, folks, because the vast majority of those of us who are sitting in this room tonight are of Gentile stock and of Gentile descent. We have some people in our congregation who are originally of Jewish uh, descent, who have become Christians. But for the most, the majority of us, We are the Johnnies coming lately into the kingdom of God. We're the Gentiles that are now a part of this mystery that has been revealed. And salvation now has come to us. And the means through which that salvation has come to us and to the Gentile world is through the fall of the Jews. This is what God has done. He has worked through the disobedience of one group to bring another group, a bigger group, a larger group into his household of faith. Now Paul uses another literary device that is common to not only to his writings, but was common to the teaching technique of Jesus. Jesus would often make comparisons between various things. But the comparison, for example, would not be between two things where one was good and the other was better, or that one was bad and the other one was good. But rather, the difference between the two was one that was so profound that the phrase that would be used by our Lord, how much more? Remember the parable of the unjust judge, where Jesus talks about this important widow who is, <clears throat> has been disenfranchised, and she seeks uh, her justice from a judge who has no regard for man or for God. 
but he won't hear her case. But she keeps pestering him, persisting. She won't stop, and finally, to stop this pestering, the judge will hear the case, not because he has any conviction for justice or any concern for the woman, but just to get his own peace and quiet, he hears her case and gives her a favorable verdict. Now, what did Jesus say? But the unjust judge will bring vindication to his people. Don't you think that the just judge would do that as well? No. The difference is if an ungodly judge on a good day will render a just vindicating verdict, how much more will God who is just vindicate His people who cry unto Him day and night? That's the device that Paul has used here. And he says, consider this, if the fall of the Jews is riches for the world, and their failures riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If God brings this good thing out of the failure of Israel, how much more blessedness will He bring through their restoration? Now, remember, Paul has begun this whole section of his epistle with the uh, statement that he made, the promise that he declared of his passionate concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. His concern here is not for spiritual Israel. His concern here is for ethnic Israel. His kinsmen, Katasarka, his kinsmen according to the flesh. So now he says in verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Even though he's a Jew, remember, the mission that Christ gave to Paul as the missionary to the Gentiles was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he magnifies his ministry, not to magnify himself, but he wants to remind the Roman readers of the exalted level of authority that Christ has chosen him to perform in his ministry to the Gentiles, of which they were included. He said, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Again, he articulates his passion for his brothers and sisters of his own nation. And he, he keeps using this term of jealousy, making them jealous. Right now they are hostile, bitter, in their opposition to the nascent Christian church. But as the glory of that church is being made manifest, Paul is hoping that the, my kinsmen will see the greatness of the gospel, will see the greatness of what Jesus has done, and instead of being angry with us, will be jealous of us and try to pursue 
the same things that we enjoy let me just make a little aside here a little excursion for a second one of the men whom i've ministered with years ago on many occasions is the man who was the founder of jews for jesus moish rosen and i don't know of any organization perhaps in history that has been more effective in leading people of jewish ancestry to christ than Jews for Jesus. And yet at the same time, I don't know of any missionary organization that has provoked more controversy or more hostility in the secular world than Jews for Jesus. And they have particularly provoked the religious establishment of American Judaism, which is deeply resentful against any type of Christian evangelism to their people. They are profoundly opposed to any type of proselytism. And I say to my Jewish friends, you know, that really puzzles me. And they say, why? They resent this evangelism. I say, do you believe that Judaism is true and Christianity is false? And they say, yes. Do you, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? No. We believe that He is the Messiah, right? Yes. And we're wrong, right? Yeah, they say you're wrong. So our religion is false. And here we are over here stumbling in darkness. You believe that we're guilty of idolatry by worshiping a man who's a creature, and we're denying the monotheistic foundation of the Jewish faith. And they say, that's right. And I say, yet at the same time, You have this antipathy towards evangelism. They say, that's right. I say, but why don't you evangelize us? If you believe that Judaism is the truth of God, why wouldn't you crawl over glass to help me out of my darkness, to help me out of my error, to bring me into the true religion of Abraham? They don't have anything to say to that except to say, sort of mumble, well, yeah, it's not for you, it's just for us. And I want to say thanks a lot, you know. So, but nevertheless, Paul is saying, I want to break through those barriers. I want to cut through that hostility and that resistance. I want to make them jealous of what God has given us. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, think of it. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Wow. If their being rejected is God's plan for the reconciliation of the world, how much more would their acceptance bring blessedness to humanity? What would it be but life from the dead? Now, some commentators of Romans believe that Paul is sort of cryptically giving us a little eschatological hint here, saying with the, the late great planet Earth that the great, the greatest sign of the times that will be the harbinger, the harbinger, the final sign 
for the coming of Christ and the consummation of His kingdom will be the conversion of Israel. Well, I certainly believe that the conversion of Israel is in view later on in this chapter, but I don't think that it's used here as an eschatological sign. When Paul talks, what would this be but life from death? I think the image here has its roots in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, when the vision is given of the valley of the dry bones, when God says to His prophet, look, and what do you see? He said, I see bones that are bleached from the sun. They are dried in this arid environment. They are in a state of hopeless death. And the question that comes to Ezekiel is, Ezekiel, can these bones rise And the answer that God gives in the vision is that when His Word comes over the valley of the dry bones, suddenly there's a stirring. Suddenly the bones begin to rattle. They begin to move together and are knit one to each other. And then flesh comes upon the bones, sinew, muscle, tissue. Then life begins to course through the veins of these skeletons, and out of death in the valley comes life. I think that's the image that Paul has in view here when he talks about if their rejection brings salvation, how much more will their acceptance bring It would be like life from the dead. He continues now with changing metaphors. For he said, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He talks about first fruits, he talks about lumps, and he talks about roots here. The first fruits refer to the offerings that were brought into the temple in the Old Testament. The first fruits from the harvests that were brought meant the initial uh, blossomings, the best of the fruit was brought before God. But the idea was that if they were consecrated, where this offering was made of the first fruits, that the blessedness did not simply remain restricted to the first fruits, but the whole crop was consecrated. The whole crop was sacred unto the Lord. And then he uses the analogy from the leaven of the bread, which is made where the, you introduce a little piece of leaven in order to make the bread rise. And if that leavening agent is sacred to God, if it is holy and set apart, what about the whole loaf, the whole lump that is infused by the initial piece of leaven? Not just that initial piece is holy, but the whole lump, he says, is holy. And again, he now turns the 
metaphor to that of the tree. He said, if the root is holy, so are the branches. But from whence cometh the consecration of the branches? This is the point that the apostle is laboring here. That what makes the branches holy is not something that is found in the branches of the tree inherently or innately. It's only by the connection of the branch to the root that the branch is considered sacred or holy. Now he presses this analogy here. If some of the branches were broken off, and he's referring to those who were the disobedient Jews, who were apostate, the ones who stumbled, the ones who were cut off from the promises of God, those wicked branches were cut off and thrown into the fire just as Jesus said they would be. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. Wow. Here the metaphor focuses not just on any tree but on the olive tree. Do you understand how important the olive tree was to the economy of Old Testament Israel? One of the most important, if not the most important, agrarian product that was produced in the land was olive oil. And that precious olive oil came from olives that grew on olive trees. And if you know anything about the land of Palestine in, in, in Old Testament days, you know that the olive tree, of all of the trees that grow in that land, was far and away the strongest and the most durable. It was the most valuable and the most durable. Their roots would go deep, and those olive trees would live three or four hundred years. You know, we think about <clears throat> the Mount of Olives that separates the village of Bethany from the city of Jerusalem. And you remember that Jesus went to Gethsemane, the olive press, when he agonized in prayer the night before he was executed. And at that time, that slope of that mountain between Bethany and Jerusalem was just covered with olive trees, olive trees of great strength and of many, many, many years of flourishing. And one of the tragedies of the history of the Jews is that during the Roman siege of Jerusalem, where the Romans encamped on the Mount of, of Olives waiting for the resources of food and water to dry up within the city. And they had this protracted siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. that the way they kept warm was they cut down those olive trees and used their branches and the wood from the olive trees to build fires to keep themselves warm. And it's a matter of history that the Mount of Olives was completely denuded of all growth by the Roman soldiers who camped there during the siege of Jerusalem. 
But in terms of the general history of Israel, the symbol of strength and durability to the Jew was the olive tree. Now, olive trees were carefully cultivated by the Jews because of their value. And in contrast to the olive tree, which was the most valuable of trees, the most durable of trees, the most worthless tree in the community was the wild olive tree. Those that grew wild without any cultivation, they didn't bear any fruit, they were worthless, they just were big, giant weeds. And that's how we're described. The branches are cut off the root of the tree. And you, he says, speaking of the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, that's what we are, wild olive tree, we're grafted in among them. Listen to what God did. He cuts off the branches of these precious, durable, valuable olive tree. And when he cuts off the branch, he makes a graft. And the graft that he puts on the tree is taken from wild olive trees, worthless olive trees, trees that had nothing to commend themselves to God. You, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. These spindly, worthless branches of the wild olive tree are plugged now into the root, and they get the sap, they get the nutrients, they draw everything that is valuable from the root of the olive tree. Salvation is of the Jews. And we must never, ever forget that. We know that Martin Luther in his elder years became very hostile toward the Jews in Germany, particularly because of their opposition to the gospel, and secondarily because the bankers were charging such high interest rates that were usurious, and Luther denounced them in no uncertain terms. But earlier in his ministry, he was more sanguine, and he reminded the church of the church's everlasting debt to the Jews, because it's out of Jews, it's out of Israel that our redemption came. They're the root. We're the wild olive branch that are grafted into the root. That should be the death blow, beloved, to any kind of anti-Semitism, and that should never be numbered among Christian people. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the branch or the root. The root supports you. How could Paul be any more graphic? You're a wild olive branch, and the wild olive branch doesn't support the root. The root supports you. Remember where you came from. And remember the grace of God in bringing you to where you are.
you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. That's true. They were grafted, <clears throat> they were cut off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. Watch yourself here, but be fearful. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Sometimes we read this text and we say, oh, shame on the Jews. They rejected the promises of God, but we have accepted them. So now we're God's chosen people. Paul says, be careful. Don't get haughty. That just as apostasy polluted Israel, it can pollute you. And we've seen it. We've seen it in our own land. We have seen the unbelievable corruption of mainline churches in our society that have become monuments of unbelief, monuments of apostasy. And just as God cuts off the branches of Israel, He will cut off the Gentile branches that are unproductive. And they also, if they do not continue, excuse me, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. Now, we like half of that. We love to contemplate the goodness of God. But that's not what the, the apostle's admonition is here, is it? He said, I want you to consider two things. Yes, contemplate, meditate, think about the goodness of God. It's an incredible goodness. It's an awesome goodness. It's a wonderful goodness. But while you're doing that, consider the severity of God. Our God is an all-consuming fire. And when His judgment comes, when it falls upon wicked people, when He judges the apostate, the judgment is severe. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. But be careful. If you become apostates, then you too will be cut off. Now, when he speaks about being cut off here, friends, this is powerful stuff, that he's speaking here again with the metaphor of branches that are, uh, that are cut off from the tree, thrown into the fire. But the principle of the cutting is deeply rooted in Old Testament faith. In fact, in the Old Testament, when covenants were made, they were cut. Cutting rites associate, were associated with the most important covenants of the Old Testament. Remember, the sign of the covenant of the Old Testament <coughs> was the sign of circumcision. And it may even seem crude or crass to you when you think about it, but what was going on symbolically when the Jewish children 
and the male children were <coughs> circumcised where the foreskin of their flesh was cut off. Why? It had a twofold symbolic significance. On the one hand, the Jews were cut off to say, I have cut you out of the world. I have separated you from lost humanity. I have consecrated you to myself in this covenant. And yet at the same time, if you do not keep the terms of this covenant, you are saying by your circumcision to me, you're saying, oh God, if I violate this covenant, may I be cut off from your blessings just as the foreskin of my flesh has been cut off. That was the negative sanction of the symbol that every Jewish boy carried in his own body. And so that principle of cutting runs deeply through the Bible. And the worst thing that can ever happen to a human being, beloved, is to be cut off. To be cut off from God. I have to give you an illustration. Several years ago, I was dealing in another church with a discipline case. A woman left her husband, took up with another man in an adulterous relationship. Became known to the church, and the church was responsible to exercise discipline. You know, when you join the church, you say that you submit to the discipline of the church. You're not an island. If you become involved in gross and heinous sin or public scandal, it is the responsibility of the church to call you into account, to plead with you to repent. And if you refuse to repent, then to first of all suspend you from the sacraments, cut you off from that means of grace in the hopes that it will make you jealous to get back into the safety of the fold. But if you persist in your impenitence, then the final act of punishment is excommunication. Do you know what that means? It means that the church of Jesus Christ turns you over to Satan, cuts you out of fellowship with the people of God. That's what excommunication is. And that's what we're commanded to do by Jesus to people who persist in gross and heinous sin. And so after the session had talked to this woman, I talked to her, and I was weeping. I said to her, do you realize what excommunication is? She was a professing Christian. I said, do you realize that if you're excommunicated, you know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into the place of testing, but deliver us from evil. Now we're delivering you to the tempter. Not to destroy you, but the final hope of excommunication is that you will come to your senses and finally repent and come back to the fellowship of the church and be received once more into the family of God. But as long as you persist in your sin, you're cut off and you're exposed 
to this very severity that the Apostle Paul is describing here. Beloved, you don't ever want to be excommunicated. A lot of people don't even worry about it. They say, ah, oh, what do I care about that? Who's the, who does the church think they are? They're the organization that God said, whatsoever sins you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatsoever things you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and we take that seriously. Severity on those who fell, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Since our time is running out, I'm going to stop at that point and pick it up at verse 23, God willing, in our next meeting. So let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are debtors to your Old Testament people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, to Jeremiah, Isaiah, to that whole history of redemption that brought to us our Messiah, our Savior. And we confess that we are nothing but wild olive branches worthy of being thrown in the fire. But in your goodness, you have grafted us into that root and consecrated us and nurtured us with that which is holy. And for that, we will be ever grateful. Keep our minds, O oh God, from apostasy, lest we too, or that our church would be cut off. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.